Well, praise the Lord. We are continuing our study through the book of Mark. Now, last week we had a Mother's Day lesson, but we're going to continue our study through Mark. Two weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus fed the 5,000. And a couple of takeaways from that was Jesus was able to use what little was available and what was willing to be used to be multiplied and bless probably 10,000 or more people. What little talent and ability you have, God can multiply it and bless others with it. And if you're willing to give that, God will use it. The second one is Jesus performed a miracle for both the disciples to see and to witness and for the crowd to see. So it wasn't just for the crowd. He, wanted, he was trying to teach the guys something as well. And we're going to find out how that ties into the next event in their life. Now, this is the event that we've probably preached on before, and you've probably I've heard it many times, Jesus walking on the water. How many know the story? Now, these events, the walking on the water, tie directly into the feeding of the 5,000s because they're like right back to back, and we're going to see how they kind of tie in together. So starting at Mark chapter 6, verse 45, we'll read the account. It says, immediately after this, Jesus made his disciples get back into the boat and head out across the lake to Bethsaida while he sent the people home. Afterward, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. During the night, the disciples were in their boat out in the middle of the lake, and Jesus was alone on the land. He saw that they were in serious trouble, rowing hard and struggling against the wind and the waves. About three o'clock in the morning, he came to them walking on the water. He started to go past them, but when they saw him walking on the water, they screamed in terror, thinking he was a ghost. They were all terrified when they saw him. But Jesus spoke to them at once. It's all right, he said. I'm here, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat, and the wind stopped. They were astonished at what they saw. They still hadn't understood the significance of the miracle of the multiplied loaves, for their hearts were hard, and they did not believe. Well, let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for your word. And we pray for your Holy Spirit to help us to rightly divide your word of truth, allow it to speak to our hearts and challenge us and encourage us the way you intended it to do, in Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at this account verse by verse. I don't like to say the word story because it makes it sound fictitious. It's an account. It's an event that actually happened. So the first verse, verse 45, says immediately after this. So it was happening right after they fed the 5,000s. Immediately after that, Jesus made his disciples get back into the boat and head out across the lake to Bethsaida, Bethsaida while he sent the people home. So no sooner did he feed the folks, gathered up all the extras, he says, okay, time to go. Jump in the boat and start rowing. Now, why did he do that? Well, because this is where we have to look at other accounts of this. Mark doesn't get into this, but other accounts. John gets into more specifics of what was going on at this time. In John 6, 14, it says, when the people saw this miraculous sign, the feeding, they exclaimed, surely he is the prophet that we've been expecting. Jesus saw that they were ready to take him by force and make him king, so he went in higher into the hills all alone. So what was happening? The crowd was getting kind of restless. This is the guy. We're going we're to have a messianic uprising. We're going we're to start this revolution today. Let's go grab him. Let's make him king. We'll force him to start this revolution, and we're going to overthrow Rome. Well, that wasn't Jesus' men, uh, mission. That wasn't what he was sent to do. And he did not want this to happen, so he quickly sent everybody away. Sent the folks home, sent the disciples in the boat across the water. 
Two reasons. He didn't want to be forced into that position. And the, and the folks who were doing it, they weren't there for the grace sermon. They were there for the miracles. They were there for the blessing. And they thought, hey, this is great. We're going to take it and we'll take over, take Rome. Again, a material blessing. And the disciples weren't ready for this because their ideas of the kingdom were too, again, national and political. They thought, if the, if the crowd wants this, this sounds good, let's do this, because that's what they were still thinking. Because they later asked him, when are you going to take over and, and over, overthrow Rome? And Jesus says, that's not why I'm here. So while they're on the water, he wants to teach them another lesson on faith. Now, do you notice a pattern with Jesus? There's a pattern of blessing, and then right after the blessing, a test. How many have noticed that? And God seems to balance each one out. The disciples returned from a, a mission of healing the sick and delivering people from demons, and now they fed 5,000, they're preaching the gospel, and, they just, and they're excited about what God's going to do. And one commentary says it this way, quote, they were on a spiritual high, and this in itself is dangerous. It's good to be on the mountaintop as long as we don't get careless and step off a cliff. Whenever something happens that's great, instantly believe that the enemy is going to allow, God's going to allow the enemy to do something in your life to get your attention off of what God's doing. And God's going to allow that to see where your faith is at that moment. Now, you remember back in Mark chapter 4, another great day of preaching. He preached on the lamp, you know, the don't hide it, all that kind of stuff, and then mustard seed. And then right after that, verse 33 in Mark 4, he said, he used many such stories and illustrations to teach the people as much as they were able to understand. In fact, his public teaching, in his public teaching, he taught not only with parables, but afterward, when there was alone with the disciples, he explained the meaning to them. So it was a powerful day, and now he's going to say, let's see if they understood. When you're in school and you have a test, what's the test for? To see if you know the material that was given to you prior, right? So... Right after that event, they hit a storm. And this is the one where Jesus is asleep in the bottom of the boat. So the first time there's a test, Jesus is with them. And they fail that one. The second time there's a test, Jesus isn't with them. And they fail this test. He was wanting to see, are they, gonna able, are they able to begin to live by faith and not by sight? When Jesus was with them, he calmed it. So, okay, great, Jesus is here, no problem. Now he's not there. Well, since he's not there, Jesus wants to have them live by faith. You just saw what I did for 5,000. Do you think I'm going to let you suffer and perish in the storm? So that was the second test. In Acts chapter 4, right after the 5,000 people were saved, what happens? The storm happens of persecution. So every new experience that God blesses us with and does a miraculous thing, God's going to send a test to see, do you really understand what's happening here? And are you ready to go to the next step? Verse 46, it says, Afterwards he went up on the hills by himself to pray. He was praying because he knew what the people were planning to do. They wanted to make him king. They wanted to start a revolution. And this would be a serious hindrance to what he was trying to accomplish. And the three times that Jesus goes off to pray, there was always some kind of crisis happening at that particular moment. At the beginning of his ministry in Mark chapter 1, in verse 27, it says, Amazement gripped the audience, and they began to discuss what had happened. 
What sort of teaching is this? They asked excitedly. It's such a, it was with such authority. Evil spirits obey his orders. The news of what he had done spread quickly through the entire region of Galilee. And verse 45, or 35 says, The next morning Jesus awoke long before daybreak and went out into the wilderness to pray. Something's going to happen. Something's stirring up. Jesus needed to pray. Jesus needs to pray when the 5,000 were starting to make him king. And then in the end of his life, when he was facing death in Mark 14, it says, For I, the Son of Man, must die, as the Scriptures declared long ago. And then verse 32, it says, And they came to an olive grove called Gethsemane. And Jesus says, Sit here while I go and pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him and began to be filled with horror and deep distress. He told them, My soul was crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and watch with me. And for Jesus, every crisis seems to be more intense. As you become older in the Lord, testing will escalate. When you're in school, you're a first grader, testing's pretty easy. You get to junior high, testing's a little bit harder. High school, a little bit harder. College, a little bit harder. Because we hopefully have learned the basics along the way. When I was trying to teach my kids and my grandkids math, the times tables, you have to know the times tables right off the bat. If you don't know those, you're never going to get past any other math anywhere. You have to know them. You can't just try to figure them out every time you're trying to figure out a math problem. So you have to know the basics. If you go into seventh grade and you don't know your math tables, you're going to be lost. You have to have them memorized. You have to know them by faith and trust that what you know is true. Jesus wants us to learn our times tables as we get older. The stuff we get tested with earlier in our faith, God expects us to keep and to memorize and to have it in the back of our mind so when the next test comes up, we can look back and say, God, help me with that one. I'm, already, I'm good for this one. We want to be ready, and if we are able to endure the testing that God allows and we remember those tests and we pass those tests, the next test won't be so hard. Now, I was never a, a good English guy. I was more always a math guy. But even in math, the first time I, I remember, I, the first time I took a test, I, I bombed it. But then I went and studied really hard. And the second time I took it, I aced it. Why? Because God's going to keep testing you if you fail the test to make sure you understand what's next. The disciples failed the test the first time they were on the water. So Jesus had to test them again. He wants them to build up their experiences to build up their faith. So verse 47 in Mark 6, it says, During the night, the disciples were in the boat out in the middle of the lake, and Jesus was alone on the land. Now, the Bible tells us when this happens. It says about 3 o'clock in the morning. Now, a couple of things about testing. Just because you're hitting a rough patch does not mean that God is not in the middle of it. Jesus told them exactly what to do. Go out on the lake. I'll meet you on the other side. So he said he's going to meet them. So they had to trust him on that one. And the second thing is, do exactly what I'm telling you to do. In spite of what may happen to you while you're there, if you're doing what God wants you to do, you're going to experience difficulty, but trust that God is going to help you through the difficulty. I remember when I was 
first thinking I was getting called to the ministry, it was like, you know, everybody who's a Christian wants to be a preacher. Is that right? <laughs> and uh, I remember my pastor called me and he said, look, he said, you need to remember this one thing. You need to remember the day you, and where you were the time you were called. Because there's going to be a lot of times in your life that you're not going to feel called and you're going to want to quit. But if you look back on that one time where you were convinced that God spoke to you at that moment, that's going to carry you through everything else that you come across. And so when God allows these testings to happen in our life, he wants us to remember those so that when it happens again, we know that God was already with us in that particular time. And if God calls you to whatever it may be, a job, a ministry, whatever it might be, if you know God's put you there, and unless God tells you to leave, whatever situation may arise that you don't particularly like, God says, I'll meet you on the other side. Don't forget, don't quit because it's difficult. Because God put you there, it's gonna be difficulties while you're doing whatever it is you're called to do. There's gonna be hardships. But God says, I've got them all beat. Just trust me and don't quit. We talked about moms last week. How many times do we wanna give our kids away? I said, you know, last week, every, you know, every, every child is a gift from God. And I said, sometimes we want their gift receipt for that. So we can exchange it for another one. Just because it's difficult doesn't mean God's not in it. And sometimes God wants to see, let's see how you're going to persevere through this. Are you, are you going to stick it out? We said to moms, stick it out through the difficult times. And when you're older, you get grandkids. The blessing for letting your children live through their teenage years because you get, that's the blessing. Grandkids, right? 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 You go to their house and you say, move aside, son or daughter. Let me see the kids. Verse 48 says, He saw they were in serious trouble, rowing hard and struggling against the wind and the waves. About three o'clock in the morning, he came to them walking on the water. Now, Jesus could have started earlier. Now, it's three o'clock in the morning. These guys are fishermen, so it's, you know, most of them are fishermen. This probably is not a big deal to them, being on the water at night. But it was such a bad situation that it was probably beyond anything they could handle themselves. They've never experienced it. And that's exactly where Jesus wanted them to be, where you're beyond your own ability to fix it. If we accomplish something in our own ability, who gets the credit? We do. And if we do it our own self, who needs God? I've used this quote before. It says, if we can explain what God's doing, then God's not doing it. Faith requires us to trust what God is doing, either through us or in us, without our ability to explain what it is he's doing. God will always call you to a place or a situation that you do not or cannot handle yourself because that's where you're going to need to cry out and ask God to help you do it. And that's where God shows up. Now, I'm sure Pastor Ryan's never had this problem, but I can tell when I have not prayed before I've preached. And I'll leave the platform going, that was a, that was a dud. Why? Because you're not prayed up, you're not ready for it. 
You think you can do it yourself. And I've had people in my old church come off, come off the platform, they say, well, you weren't ready for that one, were you? No, you're right, I, you know. You can tell when you think you can do it yourself. It may even come across like you did a good job. But you know, and God knows, yeah, God wasn't there. You try to do it on your own. God wants us to be in a place where we cannot do it on our own. We have to trust him to do it. And that's exactly the point that God shows up. Verse 48 says, Jesus started to go past them. Now, there's a couple different schools of thought on what that means. The first one was, Jesus never intended to walk by. But he kept walking because he wanted them to recognize who he was and trust him and ask him into the boat. His plan was never to walk by. He's just saying, okay, guys, how long is it going to take for you to recognize me and then ask me to come in? And the guys never, obviously never did. Now, the viewpoint of Mark, it says it looked like Jesus was walking by, but he actually wasn't. He was always going to get, he was walking right to the boat. He was just going to get in the boat whether or not they asked him to do it. Now, whichever one that is, the point is the guys did not recognize him and did not ask him in. Verse 49 says, when they saw him walking in the water, they screamed in terror, thinking he was a ghost. They were all terrified when they saw him. Now, I don't know how it was superstition-wise back then. There's, there's TV shows on today, Ghost Hunters, how many of you have seen? I don't watch it, but I hear it's out there. Ghost Hunters, that type of thing. Spoiler alert, no such thing as ghosts. Okay, no such thing as ghosts. Now, these guys, their first reaction to think it's a ghost? How often do we see what God is doing and not recognize when God's doing it? Because God may be starting to do it, but it hasn't fully transpired yet. God's in the middle of doing it. The storm's still raging, but God was coming in to handle it. Whatever situation you're going through in your life, it hasn't been resolved yet, but trust God that he's on his way to do it. I wrote down here, when you get stressed in life or things just don't just seem to get out of hand, is our first reaction going to be fear? Hopefully, our faith is built up where it isn't fear all the time. I remember when we first got married and my first kids were starting to drive. And even with my wife, if I'd get a call and they had an accident, I'd just instantly break into fear mode. Are they okay? What happened? Who got hit? You know, instant, like, just chills went up my body. It was, like, scared. Well, over time, that subsided, and I got a call from Taylor. And I'm at, I'm at work, and uh, Dad had an accident. And I'm, I'm expecting this fear to well up inside of me, but it's not. I was calm, not worried about it. Is everybody okay? Is everybody, you know, everybody's fine? Why? Because now that I'm an older Christian, the Holy Spirit doesn't instantly react in fear. That's how we should get when something comes in your life that you don't understand. Our first reaction shouldn't be fear. It should be faith. Now these guys, at that moment, thought they were going to drown. And then they see a ghost. Now one commentary calls it a water spirit. Never thought about that. And this word, as someone says, seems to better describe their thinking. That the water spirit was coming to take them down. So it gets even better. It's not just a ghost, it's a water spirit coming to drag them down. So these guys, 
They're way out in left field right now. They haven't learned anything about being with Jesus. So they're in the middle of the storm. God's trying to teach them something in the storm. But the thing that God's teaching them with, rather than them receiving it, causes them to fear. And I thought, how many times do that the blessing that God gives us is the very thing that causes fear when we don't think it's from God? What do I mean by that? Maybe you lost your job. Maybe you lost your promotion. Maybe you couldn't buy that car you're looking at. Where's Mark? He bought that car he was looking at. Maybe you were forced to move. Maybe you got sick and you missed something. All those things at that moment, you were fearful about what the consequences would be, but you didn't realize that God was in the middle of it. Every time we had to move as a married couple, it was just a stressful thing. We rented and about once a year, once every other year, we'd get a call from the landlord. Hey, we're moving. We're going to sell the place. Whatever we got to do. You got to move in 30 days. Now, this happened like four times. By the fourth time, we're like, piece of cake. But up until that point, we were really afraid, thinking, what's God doing? What's God doing? And every time it happened, it was a better place, that God provided a better place. What we thought was a fearful thing, was horrible, that, you know, what's God doing? It wound up being better for us. So sometimes we, when things like that happen, our first reaction isn't to be fearful and worried about what's going to happen. Look to see what God's doing. If we're a believer, then God's in everything, right? God, whatever happens, God's in it. The word sovereign means God's in control of everything. So whatever God's doing, we're in the middle of it, and we're not going to be fearful about it. Jesus didn't scream it to them. Hey, I'm coming, right? He started walking to them. He wanted to see how long it was going to be before they recognized him. And he waited until they were absolutely terrified before he finally said, okay, it's me. You know, sometimes God brings us to the very edge of our ability to take it, right? Just the, you just want to throw everything in, just chuck it all. That's when God shows up. He wants to see how you're going to weather that storm. Verse 50 says, Jesus spoke to them at once. It's all right, he said, I'm here, don't be afraid. Now, one of the most common phrases or commands in the Bible is fear not, right? Don't be afraid, fear not. Or similar verbiage to that. Just as a parent tries to alleviate fear in their children, God wants us to trust him and not be afraid of what's going to happen or what may not happen. If God's in charge of everything, there's no reason for us to be afraid. And we shouldn't be afraid when we don't understand what it is God's doing. Because I, I don't know about you, but God never seems to want to explain to me what he's doing until it's done. If you know that God loves you, don't need to be afraid. You take your small children to the doctor, you've got to give them a shot. You hug them to let them know, hey, don't be afraid. It's all right. God does the same thing to us. Don't be afraid. I'm in control. 1 John 4.18 says, Such love has no fear, because perfect love expels all fear. It's when your children don't know that you love them, that's when they become fearful. 
But if they know you love them and you're there for them, fear goes away. How often do you have to stay with your kids in the bedroom until they fall asleep? Because you're there. Your presence is there. And how many parents, we used to do this, stand outside the door and look through the crack in the door to watch them and see if they're sleeping or playing. Well, the point was, they had no idea, well, they might have, but they had no idea we were there, but we were always watching them. They didn't think we were there. They, for all things, they, we were gone. But we were watching every move they made. That's the way God is. You may not think God's here, you may not see God working, but God's always watching. Now, it's at this point that Peter asks Jesus to let him walk on the water. Now, we mentioned in the very beginning that we believe that Mark, Mark's gospel is Peter's version and account of things. It was kind of Mark was his, dick, you know, his stenographer taking notes. Now, we assume, but we don't know that maybe Peter didn't want to brag on himself, but we're going to look at that according to Matthew's gospel. Matthew 14, 28. Then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you by walking on the water. Well, the first thing Peter wants to be sure, okay, first, if it's you, Lord, I'm going to do it. Whenever you take a risk for God, you need to make sure that it's God calling you to do it. Not all challenges and risks are God-motivated. Sometimes they're just us-motivated. We don't need to leap ahead foolishly. The devil tempted Jesus with the same kind of thing. Hey, jump off the temple, you'll be fine. Not every risk that is placed before us is from God. And we need to make sure that what God's challenging us to do, maybe it is a risk, but we need to be sure that it's God's risk and not just my own foolishness. 29, verse 29 says, All right, come, Jesus said. God will confirm his will if you're able to listen and hear what he is saying. When I went through Bible college, all the way through, it was like, yeah, this, I don't know if this is true, if I should do this or not. And at the time, they were, you had to take a big written test, you had to take a, an oral test with about a dozen guys around a table. And I would take the written test, and I would do okay in the test, and then I had to come before these 12 guys. And I would pray, okay, Lord, you got 12 guys here praying. If I'm not supposed to do this, any one of them can nix this at any point. And so the first time I passed, it was like, praise God. But I wanted to be sure that I wasn't doing it on my own. I wanted to make sure that this is, if this is God, I want God to verify it for me. So God will verify things for you if God's calling you to do it. We heard Josiah's testimony the other week about being our youth leader. How God, he didn't want to do it. But God confirmed it in different ways for him. So God will confirm his calling to you if you're listening for it and you want to hear it. Verse 29 says, So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. Faith requires you to step out of what is familiar and comfortable into something that's not familiar and comfortable. Now, there's a storm going on, but it was still safer to be in the boat than to be in the water. If you feel the tug of the Holy Spirit to step out in faith, there's always time to pray and seek God for it. Then there's the time to step out and do it. There's a phrase we used to do. I don't know if anybody fishermen here. There's a phrase, fish or cut bait. Never, okay. 
You can sit there and cut bait all day but never fish. You've got to come to the point where you've got to put that bait on the hook and throw it in the water. There's a time to pray about it, and there's also a time to say, okay, Lord, I'm going to step out and do it. And here's another thing. If you have your kids do something for you, and they really, they want to do it, and they love God, and they love you, and they're trying to do something for you that is, they think is pleasing to you, and in the process of doing that, they mess up terribly, what's your reaction going to be? You're going to whip them and beat them because they did something? No. Their heart was right before you, and they just messed up doing it. I think when you, when you attempt something for God, it may be a mistake. God's not ready to hit you like a mallet on a whack-a-mole. He says, okay, that was a mistake. Let's go back and let's, let's start again. God's not there to crush you if, you if you step out and you start sinking like Peter did. To actually see if God's going to work, you've got to step out of the boat. Verse 30 says, when he looked around at the high waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. So he starts out great. Focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Kept on walking. And even, the storm, even though the storm was still happening around him, as long as he was focused on the Lord, he was, he was walking. Until he looked around. When you start doing something God's called you to do, there's going to be stuff happening around you. If you remember to walk, that Jesus called you to do it, and you keep walking with your face and your, like a flint, the Bible says, towards Jesus, the storms are not going to cause you to sink. Now, it's easy to get on Peter for sinking, right? Uh, a little faith. I don't see anybody else getting out of the boat. There's 11 guys in that boat. They're all like, hey, go ahead, Peter, knock yourself out. We're not getting out. So who really failed? Peter might have been the one who had actually had the faith. So now we come back to Mark's account. And verse 51 says, Then he climbed into the boat, this is Jesus, and the wind stopped. Now it appears that these two events were simultaneously and abrupt. I mean, like instantly. Why? Because verse 51 says, They were astonished at what they saw. They probably wouldn't have been astonished if the, the storm slowly faded away. But it seems like it just instantly stopped the water went from rough to calm instantly the minute he put his foot in the boat bang storm stopped and they had to see that it's not a coincidence that it just didn't die on, down on its own that god had a plan and he stopped the storm instantly got into it but they still didn't get it verse 52 they still didn't understand the significance of the miracle of the multiplied loaves, for their hearts were hard and they did not believe. Again, they failed the test. They didn't have receptive hearts. They didn't have spiritual insight. They didn't understand that the same guy who fed 10,000 people with just a couple of fish is the same guy who calmed the storm before. Why can't he calm it now? You know, if we're not careful, our hearts will become hardened if we don't learn from the things that we experience in our life. And a lot of those are spiritual truths that God tries to get into your head to experience. All the times that I'm able to share things that God did for me, it's not because it's me, it's because God wants you to understand he does the same thing for you. You'll get confirmations and you'll get callings and you'll get blessings and you'll get answered prayer and you'll get testing. Every one of those is meant to make you a more mature believer. 
The ending of that, starting in verse 53, says, When they arrived at Gesenaret on the other side of the lake, they anchored the boat and climbed out. The people standing there recognized him at once, and they ran throughout the whole area and began carrying sick people to him on mats. Wherever he went, in villages and cities and out on the farms, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and plazas and streets. The sick begged him to let them at least touch the fringe of his robe, and all who touched it were healed. Jesus stayed with them in the boat until they got to the shore. Whatever you're going through, God's going to stick with you until you get to the other side. And then God's going to still be with you there, but he's going to be with you in the storm. He's going to help you navigate that if you allow him to do that. And you don't let fear and worry and panic take over. If you know that God's in control of it, God's got this, God's called you to do this, God will get you through whatever's going to happen. The verse we've quoted many times, the Bible says, when I walk through the water, I won't drown. When I walk through the fire, I won't get burned. It doesn't say you're going to go around it. It says when I'm walking through it, God will carry you through it. The old uh, poem, the footprints poem, if you remember those from one set of footprints, Jesus says, that's when I carried you. There's not two sets because I carried you through that situation. And God will carry you through it if you allow him to do it. Now, when he got to the other side, his fame had begun to spread because the people he said not to say anything were saying things. And you know, there's a Don Francisco song that says, I gotta tell somebody. Familiar, familiar with the song? Talks about the Jairus' daughter getting healed. He's like, dude, I gotta, tell, I gotta tell somebody this happened. And the whole song goes, he just, he just freaks out. I gotta tell someone Jesus did for me. But at this point, Jesus was telling people, don't say anything because my time isn't ready. I'm not ready for this kind of attention. But people were saying it anyways. And now his fame is spreading and everyone's chasing him after looking for healings. And, but not only did they hear about him, they also recognized him. So that must have mean they must have seen him preaching at some point. Maybe they've experienced something from him personally because it says they recognized his face. And so now they're chasing him down, hoping to get a touch, hoping to get a healing. And again, we believe these are the ones that were just after him for the healings, not the salvation. They want the blessings from God, but not the calling of God. They want the, the goodies, but not the, the price to pay. Now, we talked about the woman with the issue of blood a couple weeks ago. That story also must have gotten around because we're going to see here it says that they touched his garment and were healed. How would they know to do that? Unless what she experienced, either she's telling people or other people are telling people, hey, touch his garment, you'll be healed. This woman was healed. And so... How would they know that unless someone's telling them? Now, but the thing is, the town, whether or not they believed in his message, they believed in the healing. And they were healed. This town had the faith to believe that Jesus could heal them. And they were all coming out. Compare that with Nazareth. We heard about a couple of weeks ago. The Bible says very few of them believed. And Jesus even couldn't do miracles here because no one believed it. Not that he couldn't do it, but he knew it was a waste of time to do it because they didn't believe. But as with most crowds, they only came to Jesus to get, not to give. How often do we pray, do we ask things of Jesus 
but never offer an opportunity to give something to Jesus. A lot of people talk about money at this point, but I'm thinking it's your life, your abilities, what, what you can do with yourself to minister to people. How many of you have a prayer list, and when you're done with the prayer list, you close your book and you walk on? Rather than listening to what Jesus may be telling you after you're done asking him for everything you're asking him for. Barclay's Bible study says this, or study Bible says this. If we examine ourselves, we are all to some extent guilty of these things. It would rejoice the heart of Jesus if more often we came to offer him our love, our service, and our devotion, and less often to demand from him the help that we need. When your kids are teenagers and you tell them no, wouldn't you just, well, if, if this ever happened to anybody, I need to know. But wouldn't you appreciate it if, you, if they said thank you? No, you can't go to that place tonight. Thank you, Dad. I know that's anathema to kids. But don't, wouldn't it be nice if your kids just said, now the little ones do that. They'll tell you they love you all day long. When they get to be teenagers, yeah, not so much. It would be nice just to have them offer something, give you something, just because they want to do it. I'm going to embarrass my kids today. Last Father's Day, either Father's Day or my birthday, you know, I wear crazy socks. I got socks with my kids' faces all over them. It says, I love you, Dad. So, yeah, that's on tape. That'll, that'll embarrass them. But it's nice just to receive and not be asked for anything. Now, when they get to be older, they do that. But the teenage years, you know, they're pretty much gimme, gimme, gimme. God is the same way. It would be nice for us to say, you know what, thank you, Lord, for not answering my prayer like that today. Or thank you, Lord, for the things you've done for me in the past that I never thanked you for. I thank you for my health. I thank you for the house that I live in. I thank you for the car. I don't want anything today, Lord. I just want to thank you for how good you are to me. But even if we don't do that, notice that people came to get. Jesus still had compassion on them to heal them. Even though they were coming, me, 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 Jesus still had compassion on them and gave them what they wanted. The last sentence I wrote here is, do we take time just to thank him for all he's done without asking for anything in return? That's how we ought to be. Our life should be marked with just gratitude. If we're here today, you're breathing. Everybody drove here, I'm guessing. You have a car. Thinking everybody has a house to live in. Or a beautiful trailer. Do we just take time to thank him for, just for blessing us so much? And we don't deserve it. Think of the things we have and then think about how, do we really deserve it? I'm going to think probably not. Now, God will bless you in obedience. God will do things if you're obedient to him. But the blessings that he's poured out on me 
I can tell you, I don't deserve them. I don't. But God still does it. And I'm going to say that most of us don't deserve the blessings of God. But God is still faithful to do it. Because just as a father loves his kids, God loves you. That way, would you stand as we close this morning? Would you bow your heads, close your eyes for a moment? You know, I never want to make the mistake to assume that everybody who comes to church knows Jesus personally. I sat in church for three years, didn't know Jesus. But everybody thought I did. And maybe you're here today, you're the same boat. You've been in church, this church years. And you come because it's nice fellowship, nice hangout. But you don't know Jesus. I mean, you, you know about Jesus, but you don't know him. And the Bible says that, as we sang today, when you become a Christian, you become a new, a new creation. It's not just the old person is better. The old person actually is dead. And the new person becomes alive. Because the Bible says we were dead in sin. We were all sinners. And the Bible says the wages of these sins is death. And that death is eternal separation from God. Not just in this life, but in the life to come. Basically, God says, if you don't want me here, I'm not going to make you want me there. But the Bible also says that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. In other words, he's offering you a, a chance not only to escape eternal punishment, but a chance to have a brand new life here. The old person that you had was, would be gone. And the Bible also says as many as receive him, did he give the authority to become children of God? In other words, it's not, not everybody. It's for everybody, but not everybody does it. You actually have to receive the gift. You have to come to a point where you say, Jesus, I believe that I'm a sinner, and I believe that your death was my payment for the sins that I committed. Nothing good that I have ever done will merit me heaven, and I can't earn it no matter how good I am. So Jesus, I believe that what you did in my place merits me heaven. And that you were there, your sacrifice was my payment, my payment for sin. And once you do that, the Bible says the Holy Spirit changes who you are. And now you become a new creation that you can't even explain what God's done in your life. But you leave excited because you know something's changed. And if that's you, and you're here this morning, I want you to Ask yourself, do I know Jesus or do I know about Jesus? A lot of people know about Jesus. But a Christian knows who Jesus is. And if that's you, you want to make that introduction today, I want you to raise your hand because I'm going to pray with you and show you what God can do in your life. All right, I'm going to assume that we're all believers this morning. But maybe you're going through a situation in your life 
Just like the disciples, you're in the middle of a storm. You're not sure what it is. You're not sure why it's there. But if God is your father, then you know God is with you in that boat. And he will bring you through that to the other side. The other disciples didn't jump out of the boat when Jesus got in. They stayed in the boat with Jesus. And the minute Jesus comes into your life, God will quiet your storm. He may not quiet the situation, but he'll quiet you in the storm. So let's just pray to that effect. Father, I do thank you that your word is true. And I thank you for the examples and the and the life experiences that other people have went through that allows us to be encouraged at what we know to be true. Your Bible is not just a book of accounts, it's a book of, of how you ministered to people then as well as how you minister to people today. You're the same. You weren't in the boat with them physically. Jesus, you're not in this room with us physically. But we operate by faith and not by sight. And when your word says where two or more are gathered, there you are. We believe that you're here, even though we don't see you. So Lord, I pray for each person here that God, you would just fill them with the Holy Spirit. Allow them to experience the, the power that just comes from knowing you. Give them strength to encourage and go through whatever situation they're going through in life. If they've come out the other side of that situation, Lord, allow them to be a blessing to those that are just going into it. Let your spirit encourage us and challenge us. Take away any fear we might have and help us to be replaced with the trust we have that our Father will see us through and our Father will never let anything happen to us that is beyond his, his ability to control. Lord, I commit each person to you today. Allow the Spirit of God to work in their lives in a way that only you know that each person needs. For those in our family and friends who don't know you, Jesus, I pray that you would draw them as well. Let the Holy Spirit continue to minister to them. Let them know you love them. As we prepare for VBS, we pray for those who are coming. That God, you do a great work in their lives as well. Save many kids, save the adults. Let this, let this VBS matter for eternity. Lord, I commit this church to you in every aspect, in Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you.